This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Alexander Skarsgård, stars as a Viking in the new movie The Northmen. Set toward the end of the 10th century, the story is based on Norse mythology. In the HBO series True Blood, Skarsgård played Eric Northman, who became a vampire a thousand years ago when he was a Viking. More recently, Skarsgård played an abusive husband in Big Little Lies, for which he won an Emmy, Golden Globe, a Critics' Choice Television Award, and an award from SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. In the latest season of HBO's Succession, he played a tech billionaire. Alexander Skarsgård grew up in Stockholm, Sweden, where he's joining us from now. He's the son of the prominent actor Stellan Skarsgård, who's appeared in movies, stage, and TV since the 60s, and he's the brother of Bill Skarsgård, who's famous for his role as Pennywise, the dancing clown in the supernatural horror film It, based on a Stephen King story. Alexander Skarsgård had his first film role at the age of seven, and a film he made at the age of 13 made him famous in Sweden. After that, he took a seven-year break from acting. When Skarsgård was growing up in Sweden, he watched Viking movies and learned about some of the mythology from his grandfather. The new movie, The Northman, begins with his character as a young prince who witnesses his father, the king, be murdered by the prince's uncle, who then makes off with the prince's mother, the queen. The boy dedicates his life to avenging his father, saving his mother, and killing his uncle. The film skips ahead to 20 years later, when Skarsgård's character Amleth is part of a group of marauding Vikings who plunder and burn villages and slaughter the people living there. As one character describes him, he's a beast cloaked in man flesh. He acts like a beast, and he howls like a beast, as you'll hear in this scene in which the Vikings, on a night before a raid, are doing a warrior dance, chanting around a bonfire at night. The chant turns into roars, and at the end, you hear Skarsgård howl. Alexander Skarsgård, <laughs> welcome to Fresh Air. <laughs> did, did you have a voice left after that? Thank you very much, Terry. I'm uh, honored to be speaking to you. That, that is quite a howl. Uh, I basically didn't have a voice for seven months because we did. That was one moment, but there's probably fifteen, twenty other scenes in the movie in which my character kind of has a has a crank it up to eleven. Um, and uh, I guess I didn't use my diaphragm. Correctly, because I, I was, uh, yeah, I, my, my voice was completely gone. Where did you find that rage in yourself? Um, oof, I don't, that's a good question. I, um, in the clip we just heard, my character, it's a transformation. My character is a, a Viking berserker, and his spirit animal is, um, is a hybrid of a wolf and a bear. And there, it's this ritual that they go through before um, before a raid of a village. And uh, it was about shedding your humanity in a way, letting go of your huma- humanity and, and uh, turning into a beast. So um, tapping into a, a more atavistic, more animalistic state. And uh, I, it, it was quite cathartic. I'm, I'm quite a mellow guy. I, I don't scream a lot. I, I don't like arguments. I don't like fights. I'm very... Well, I'm very Swedish, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so in a way, it was it was quite thrilling and, and exciting to to shoot those scenes because it uh, 
I definitely got to tap into something I, I don't tap into very often to kind of find that, that inner animal and let it out. So you grew up in Sweden. Your grandfather taught you a lot about the Vikings and Norse mythology. Did your grandfather feel any personal connections to those ancient stories? Yeah, he did. He actually, to the point where my grandfather and his two brothers actually changed their last name from Nelson to Skarsgård um, in the 40s. And it's, it, the etymology behind the word is Skares Gord, which means uh, the farm of Skare. And that is an, um, a farm, a Viking farm on Öland, which is an island in the Baltic Sea on which uh, his father, my great-grandfather, built a wooden cabin over 100 years ago. And it's, it's a cabin that we still have in the family, and we go there every, every summer. He claimed that we were direct ancestors of, of, of Skåre, but again, who knows? It was a thousand years ago. We definitely know that we have ancestors many, many jury, generations back from, from Öland, that island. I thought I read that there were, there were pacifists in your family, <laughs> which yeah. doesn't, doesn't match with the image of Vikings in your new movie. No, it's it's true. My dad was a, a hippie and uh, very much a pacifist. And uh, so I, I grew up in that environment. It was a very um, bohemian lifestyle with my, my dad, obviously, my mom, and the, but also the whole extended family. I was a uh, as a ragtag group of poets and artists and and um, and very very left leaning progressive people. There are supernatural elements in the movie, and I'm sure there are supernatural elements in the stories and mythology of the Vikings. Which what what are some of the stories or some of the images or supernatural elements that your grandfather told you about that really stuck with you? He told me about um, in, in the cabin. There's no bathroom, so we would you would have to go outside to uh, to pee. And uh, early in the morning, Grandpa and I went out into the to the grass to pee. We would feel the 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 dew under our feet, uh, the wet grass. And, and and Grandpa explained that the dew is actually not condensation. It's not water. It's sweat from the flanks of of the Valkyries' horses because at night. The Vikings believed that um, the slain warriors would get picked up during the night by the Valkyries, these female warriors that would ride down from Valhalla or Valhalla and um, and pick up the the warriors and then ride back, to bring them to to Odin in Valhalla. And they were very busy during the night because a lot of the warriors had been slain. So uh, the horses got sweaty, and the dew that 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 we stood on and felt under our feet was was uh, actually the sweat of the, the, the Valkyrie's steeds. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't believe in it, obviously, and he didn't, but, but he told me that was those stories, and he didn't try to convince me that it was actually true, but um, he had a, an amazing imagination, and he loved, again, history and those old uh, stories from the, the Norse mythology, and uh, that's one that really stuck with me. Yeah, I guess it made wet grass a lot more exciting. <laughs> it did, it sure did. <laughs> it sure did. And that was also something that we, many, many years later, tried to capture and tried to, in the Northmen, that line between the natural world and the supernatural world, the, the spiritual world. We wanted to blur that line because, again, the, the components, the elements of the, the film that, that might seem supernatural to an audience in 2022 would not have been strange at all to a Viking a thousand years ago. Um, and, and, and what we tried to accomplish was for the audience to see the world through Amlet's eyes, 
So when uh, he gets picked up by a Valkyrie to be taken to a Valhalla or when, or when he has to fight a seven-foot skeleton giant, it's not surprising to him uh, because, again, these are stories, um, part of the folklore, stories he's been told since he was a toddler. So we, didn't, we again, try to kind of just blur the line between the natural and the supernatural. So one of the things you had to learn for the new movie is how to fight with weapons that are supposed to look like very ancient weapons and how to, like, stab people in the heart and behead them. And <laughs> um, So can you talk a little bit about learning how to look as authentic as possible in these really uh, brutal scenes uh, that also had to be very carefully choreographed. Yeah, the the sequences, the way Robert Eggers, the the filmmaker, the director of the the movie, his style of working is quite unique, and especially when it comes to big action adventure films. Uh, Rob and, and Jaron Blaschka, his his cinematographer, they, first of all, they shoot on film, which is quite rare these days, and all the scenes, almost all the scenes, definitely all the big uh, set pieces, the big action scenes are shot in just one long continuous take, which complicates things quite a bit. Most films, you'll have several cameras going simultaneously and you have coverage so you can cut into a big fight scene and just focus on one stunt. But Rob wanted the uh, the intimacy, the, the connection with the characters and didn't, didn't want to feel any cuts that you're actually hopefully a bit more um, immersed in, in the story and with the characters if you if you stay close and that the audience feels that they're with Amleth throughout the whole fight. It complicated things in a way uh, because, for example, there's the, the scene that follows the, uh, the the little clip of us howling that we just heard in the beginning is a three-minute long raid of a village and um, with 20, 30 actors, 20, 30 stuntmen, hundreds of extras, there's horses, there's chickens flying through the frame. Um, and again, a lot of moving components to, to making that work. And the camera's also moving with us throughout the scene. So it was technically quite challenging to accomplish that, but we knew that it would be. And, and so we started months, several months before uh, we shot that scene and meticulously planning it and, and the choreography of it and the dance, so to speak, between us and the the camera operator because it's so it had to be timed perfectly um since we're moving all of us are moving through this melee this chaos and uh yeah it was it was quite an <laughs> an intense day when we shot that so technically difficult but i would say the flip side of that is it was so incredibly immersive for me as an actor because again rob is all about historical accuracy and authenticity so the the village was built um you could move around at 360 and there weren't sets it was built the way a, a village would have been built a thousand years ago um so my job was almost <laughs> halfway done when i came to set because just stepping into those shoes and onto that set was such an immersive experience and then the fact that you got to shoot it and move once you're in that adrenaline filled state of mind and you're charging through the scene Sometimes it's quite exhausting to stop and go, which you normally do in a movie. You shoot something for a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds, and then you take a break, and then you go back and go at it again and again and again. So it's more of a a roller coaster in terms of your level of adrenaline. This was you kind of open the tap, and then you get to, you're in it, you're absorbed in it, and you get to do it till the very end. Then you obviously have to go <laughs> do it over and over again because it was again technically very difficult to get all those components to work, but. 
it was a, a really exhilarating and thrilling way of working that I was, I, I'd, I'd never worked that way before. Um, so it, I learned a lot. It was challenging, but, but, but an extraordinary experience. Since there were animals like chickens in the scene, if the chickens didn't get their part right, did you end up being angry at chickens because you had to do the scene over? Because <laughs> yeah, the, chicken the chickens messed were, up? <laughs> they were complete divas and wouldn't come out of their trailers, and they yeah. were uh, very difficult <laughs> to work with. Uh, <laughs> but it uh, no, but, but sometimes that would happen. Sometimes it would be something would happen three seconds before the end of the shot, and it could be something just a horse facing the wrong way in the background, or or a small detail that wasn't perfect. And then those takes were, yeah, they, they, were, they were tough when, when everything fell. You, you found that fluidity to it and all the stunts worked and the movement and everything uh, and, and, and you, you, you were in it and it felt great. And then you can't use that take because, again, a small detail. But it, it, it was, we just had to be patient and focused and go back and do it again and again uh, until the chickens did what we wanted them to do. And yeah. by the way, they are brilliant in the film. Yes, <laughs> Let's talk about your role in the last season of Succession, the one that ended, I guess, a few months ago. You play a tech billionaire in this who runs a streaming platform called Gojo. And, of course, the the story centers around the Roy family, which owns a, a media empire. And they have, like, a lot of content, but they have a really bad streaming platform. So they want to buy you out so that they have a great streaming platform for their content. And, um, you know, Logan Roy, who is the patriarch, is very old. He's been sick. No one knows how much longer he's going to live. The children, of course, the adult children have been fighting to see who will succeed their father and head this company. Um, so this is a scene at a party, and you and Kieran Culkin's character, Roman Roy, are talking in this party, and he's trying to convince you that you should have a meeting with his father and talk about selling out. So I should mention that that previous to this meeting between your character and Karen Culkin at the party, Logan Roy, the patriarch, I think he had wanted to meet with you, but instead you sent a representative, which really made Logan Roy, the patriarch, angry. And that's referred to when Kieran Culkin picks up the dialogue in this scene. Um, question. My old man got a little bit grumpy this morning, but you weren't trying to humiliate him, right? I mean, everyone says, I mean, everyone says, last big legacy content library, last super app streaming platform. We fit, obviously, right? People say we fit. Yeah. Well, I guess I do have one question, though. Yeah, hit me up. When will your father die? When will when will my father die? Yeah. Um, like, I don't want to be rude, but... What kind of shape is he in? We're talking less than a year, or is more like five years? Because um, if it's five, that's... It's a long time. Uh-huh. It, it would be better sooner, wouldn't it? <laughs> No, 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 I know. Like we're we're laughing here, but you know that is my dad, so you know. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I can tell that it's a bit weird for me. That's okay. It's just I, I don't like the idea of a man hanging over. Me. No, I, I can understand. What's that? Because it's it's not my world, media. Yeah. So 
his death would clear space. Mm -hmm. That scene is really funny, especially like the way you ask, like, when do you think your father will die? (laughs) It just cuts straight to the chase. Yeah. (laughs) My understanding is that you went right from doing Succession to doing The Northman. So you go from playing this like, you know, wealthy, entitled tech billionaire to playing like this brutal Viking a thousand years ago. (laughs) I mean, it's such a, it's such a contrast. Um, Even like your posture, like it, you know, in, in, in a scene in succession at like your home where um, uh, the patriarch is there talking with you, like you are like, slouching in your couch with like a, you know your <laughs> leg up and you know, it's not it's not like a very respectful posture for meeting somebody who is your equal or more powerful than you, you know? no um, no and it, that that's also there were so many things that made that character so much fun to play but one of them was that he he didn't have to treat um Brian Cox's character like a king he's like well I don't care who Logan is. I don't like this is um I don't need him in my life and that is something unusual in the world that that the Roy's operate in because uh he is uh the emperor to everyone else and yeah. and suddenly there's a guy who who again is like doesn't even bother putting on shoes before the meeting. He's walking around in his flip-flops and slouching on the couch and and then you know suddenly or not suddenly but decides well, well maybe I should buy you instead. And Brian Cox is obviously one of the greatest actors of our time. So to be able to work with with him and Karen is also phenomenal. On on such a beautifully written, fantastic and fun scene was 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 a real treat. And we'd shot the majority of the Northmen before before that uh, in Northern Ireland. But then we were going to go to Iceland and shoot um, a week or two out there. Right after, literally right after. Um, shooting at that villa, the Lake Como house, which is, for anyone who's seen the episode, it's like the most beautiful house I've ever seen. It's absolutely stunning. And these Riva boats, these beautiful Italian wooden boats, and it's just like, it's, it's it, there's so much wealth and luxury around that, like it's mind-boggling. And then I went straight from there to Iceland where I was going to play a Viking slave, so I put on shackles, <laughs> and then I was being dragged through the mud, through the Icelandic mud. So that was an interesting 48 hours, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) Were you hooked on Succession before you had a a role in it? Yeah. So I've only said yes to something once before without reading the script. It was when when, uh, Lars von Trier called and asked if I wanted to be in Melancholia. And I I, I just said, I don't care what you want me to do, but I'll be there. (laughs) Uh, That's a great film. I, I really like that film. Uh, uh, thank you, Terry. I, it, I had had an, an an amazing time shooting that. So it was. I do not regret saying yes without having read the script. And this would have been the second time. I absolutely adore <laughs> Jesse Armstrong and, and admire everything he's done, even before Succession, the Peep Show, and the stuff he did in the UK. Um, the writing is so smart, and I I was I found season one and two of Succession some of the greatest television I'd ever seen. So. When he reached out, I, I said, you don't even have to, like, eventually I'd love to know who you want me to play, but um, I'm in no matter what. Well, let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Alexander Skarsgård, and he stars in the new film, The Northman. We'll be right back after we take a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. 
Let's get back to my interview with Alexander Skarsgård. He stars in the new Viking movie, The Northman. He also starred in True Blood, Diary of a Teenage Girl, Big Little Lies, and in the most recent season of Succession, he played a tech billionaire. So you grew up in Stockholm. Your father is actor Stellan Skarsgård. And um, people probably know him from Goodwill Hunting, more recently from Dune. He was in HBO's Chernobyl, Mamma Mia, The Avengers, uh, Melancholia, Thor. So there's a lot of diverse films people might may know him from. What were you exposed to about acting when you were a child? Like, how did acting look at you before you were seven, before you had an acting role yourself? Um. My my dad did repertoire theater in Stockholm when I was a child. So he would do rehearse during the day at the Royal Dramatic Theater in Stockholm. So he would rehearse during the day and then perform at night. And uh, we worked with with Igmar Bergman on stage when when I was when I was a child. Uh, he worked with Igmar Bergman. Yeah, yeah. I did not. Igmar Bergman was just some old dude. Uh, so I, I wasn't really impressed by that when I was five, six years old. It was more fun to hang out back in the hair and makeup department in the, of, of the theater and play around with um, prosthetics and wigs and stuff. So, And then my father's dear friend, uh, Alan Iadval, who's a, he was a, a fantastic Swedish uh, director and actor, um, needed a seven-year-old kid for, for a movie. And uh, he was over at our house having dinner and saw a seven-year-old kid running around. So he, he asked if I had any interest in, in, in being in the movie. And so that's kind of how I got started. So you, you became kind of famous in Sweden after you started in a TV series when you were 13. You've said that being a child actor in Sweden is different from being a child actor in Hollywood. What's the difference? Well, first of all, the scale, it's, it's basically like being famous in Idaho, no shade on Idaho, but it's obviously smaller than being famous internationally or, or uh, in all states. It's um, there's only yeah, it's a small country, Sweden. So it, it's a very small industry, and um, being famous wasn't. Uh, I, I never had a desire to become an actor, and it was never something I, I pursued. It uh, when I worked on Wolkansvad with the the, the the movie when I was seven with Alan Edval. Um, that led to a couple of other other jobs, and, and 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 so for a couple of years I did work, or I guess six years until uh, I was thirteen, on a couple of smaller Swedish productions, uh, and um, and then I did it. It, it, it wasn't a series; it was a, a made-for-TV movie, basically a, an hour-long movie called Hundesm uh, Lug, the Smiling Dog, and. Uh, this is back when there were there were only two channels in Sweden and obviously pre-internet. So whatever was on, people tended to watch. So it got the impact of that quite changed my life quite a bit. It uh, it was suddenly recognized and uh, it it made me uncomfortable. I think thirteen is a is an <laughs> awkward, uncomfortable age for most kids. But to then be in the spotlight and to be recognized and be different when you go to school. The fact that other people are giggling or whispering and are watching you in a different way made me very, um, uh, very uncomfortable. And it, it, I lost confidence and um, just was not comfortable with that. And so I, I, I decided to to quit and not not do any more projects. And again, it wasn't a a, a monumental, difficult decision. 
stepping away from it and to have a, I guess, a n- normal childhood wasn't wasn't a difficult decision for me. I think it was during the period when you were not acting that you uh, were in the Swedish military doing counterterrorism. Who were the suspected terrorists of the time? It would have been, this was in the late 90s, around the millennia, basically. So the job of our unit was to secure the archipelago, the islands outside of Stockholm. And I went into it not for any heroic or patriotic reasons. I went into it because I'm from a, f- a very bohemian family of, of pacifists. I grew up in Södermalm, which is a, a very artistic neighborhood of South Stockholm um, and surrounded by people that were not uh, very physical, not very active, not very <laughs> outdoorsy. We It was mostly dinner parties with lots of wine flowing and conversations about art rather than uh, out in, 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 in nature or um, so I, at, at the age of 19, I, I, I wanted to do it more as a personal challenge and, and, um, and, and uh, I was, it, it felt so kind of diametrically opposite my upbringing. So I, I wanted to, 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 I guess, challenge myself and go do something that was, um, that I had never done before or experienced before. How was the experience? How did it work out? Um, it was horrible and, and wonderful. It was a year and a half and it was very challenging uh, physically and mentally. But I think I, I learned a lot about myself and about um, working with others because we worked in, in, in small units, myself and three other guys out in these islands. So we're very, um, we operated very independently. Um, so um, I formed some strong friendships and uh, I'm in hindsight glad I did it, but... Uh, yeah, I want to hear about I, I, the horrible parts. <laughs> what, what, was, what was horrible about it? No, they they test you obviously, and it, it, it's it, when you go through on basic training, and then when you're out, and, and, and they want you to kind of find your limits and uh, physically and mentally, and challenge you so that you 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 can operate even under distress. So that that was something that as is quite a spoiled comfortable kid from 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 an urban area in in, in Stockholm where uh, I never had to kind of deal with the elements if it was raining I just didn't go out or if it's cold I put on an extra jacket so that that was all uh, kind of a I wouldn't say shock but definitely something I wasn't accustomed to it sounds like good training for the Northmen. <laughs> um, it, it was basically yeah, <laughs> it was pretty much the same Northmen we crawled around in mud for seven months and uh, that's basically what I did for a year and a half in the in the military. Let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Alexander Skarsgård, and he stars in the new Viking movie, The Northman. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. You were very self-conscious as a young actor at the age of 13, and you didn't want to act because you, di- you didn't like being different. You didn't like all the attention. When you got the role of Eric the Vampire in the HBO series True Blood a few years ago, um, you became a star from that. And not only that, you became a kind of heartthrob. Um, So I'm wondering what that was like for you as somebody who had previously rejected the idea of being noticed as an actor, you know, offset. Oh, suddenly I loved fame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I was, I was old enough and 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 a bit more um, confident and secure to be able to handle 
all the chaos around being an actor and 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 and, um, and being on a show that gets a lot of uh, that hit kind of hits the zeitgeist and gets a lot of attention. I was able to still have a private life and and and, and um, I want to say a, a public persona, but knowing when you're out in the world meeting people and 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 instead of being when someone recognized me or came up to me when I was younger, it made me uncomfortable. And instead, I tried to kind of not lean into it, but at least embrace it. And and genuinely being, um, when someone recognizes you and they they like your character or um, a movie or, or a show you're on, um, and that is, why shouldn't that be a great feeling? Why shouldn't you feel grateful for that and, and be excited that what you've done, your work has actually reached someone and, and meant something to someone. So I try to th- approach it from that angle to feel, take joy out of that. And the fact that, again, I'd been unemployed and, and struggling to find work for many years. Not only had I gotten a job, but I gotten a job that um, people actually cared about. And that is a wonderful feeling. Uh, it's not, that's definitely not always the case. And I think that that mindset helped me um, when it got crazy around True Blood. Um, in in Big Little Lies, you played Nicole Kidman's husband, and you were somebody who had to travel a lot. You thought felt like you were being shut out of the family, and this would like this and other things would lead to fights with Nicole Kidman's character, and you'd get like really angry. And end up like hitting her or shoving her against the wall or kind of strangling her, but not to death. And these scenes would typically end with you both having sex. Mm. Um, And when I interviewed her recently, she said that in between these takes of like anger and physical force that would end up in sex, that she would lie on the floor in her underwear with a towel over her. And she couldn't get up. It wasn't like she physically couldn't get up. She emotionally couldn't get up. And the people around her, the crew, would ask, are you all right? And she'd be crying and saying, yes, I'm fine, because she was Mm. trying to be professional. I'm wondering what impact those scenes had on you. Yeah, they were some of the most difficult days I've experienced on a set. Um, Nicole and I became very close on, on uh, that experience really brought us together and, and it it demanded complete trust between us uh, in order to go into that darkness physically and mentally uh those scenes were so horrific and um but we spent many days weeks leading up to the shoot talking about the relationship and 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 we were both creatively excited because it felt like a nuanced, accurate depiction of an abusive relationship. Um, Perry was not a, 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 a cliche or a stereotype of an, of an abusive husband. Um, and you could understand Celeste why she might have been drawn to him and why she might be conflicted in the beginning when he's oscillating between the light and the darkness. And, and that was something that we spent a lot of time talking about. And then going into those very, very intense scenes, they, they were... Uh, they were horrific to shoot, and uh, we had to check in with each other nonstop before takes, after takes, to make sure that because we we both had to commit so completely. Uh, um, but it was it was draining. It was draining. But walking away from it was when we wrapped it up. We uh, I love Nicole 
so much, and it was absolutely wonderful to be reunited with with her on The Northman, this time as my mother, but again, also a very dark, weird, twisted relationship. But I think because we had that, um, we we'd established that trust on Big Little Lies. That was really valuable when we started shooting The Northman, uh, uh, having that strong connection. But no, the, 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 those days, like the one you 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 mentioned, they they were uh, they were horrible. They were horrible. It's so odd that Nicole Kidman played your wife in Big Little Lies and your mother in the new film The Northman. Yeah, it was because after Big Little Lies, we basically said, "Let's find something to do uh, again." Um, but maybe something lighter. And then two years later, when I, um, when, when we had the first draft of The Northman, I, with Robert Eggers and all the producers, everyone agreed that Nicole would be the perfect Queen Gudrun. Um, so I, yeah, I called her and I said, "Well, I got something here. Uh, I don't, I don't know how much lighter it is. Uh, it's also quite dark." But we were just thrilled when when she joined us. And after this, I promise the next project we do together will be. Um, a musical or a rom-com or something. I think the closest you've been in a musical is maybe the Lady Gaga video of her song Paparazzi. That's true. It's also quite dark. We try to kill each other in that one. Yeah, you push her off a balcony. I, mean, I do, I do. <laughs> you carry her onto the balcony, place her on the rail of it, give her a very passionate <laughs> kiss, and then just kind of push her off. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of the song, by the end of the video, she's poisoned you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, but the, you know, it's it's a it's a music video. It's like a seven minute music video, but it's packaged like it's a movie. You know, uh, like paparazzi starring <laughs> Lady Gaga yeah. and Alexander Skarsgård, and it, it's kind of written in letters like an old fashioned movie. Was that her attempt to like make a movie, or you know? Fulfill her I, I fantasy of starring was, in a film? I, the, this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was her first album. I did not know who she was at the time. As a friend of mine, L.A.-based Swedish director named Jonas Åkerlund, directed that video. So, And I was shooting, True Blood wasn't even out yet. So this was, I was shooting season one of True Blood. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure season one wasn't even out yet. Um, and he called and asked if I... He's going to do this music video with an artist named Lady Gaga. And he explained the premise of it, and it sounded super fun. It was going to be shot over a weekend in Malibu. And I said, yeah, Jonas, I'll come do this this Lady Goo Goo video any day. <laughs> I don't know who she is, but it sounds great. <laughs> Did it lead to anything that surprised you? No, not I mean, not more than – we had a fantastic week, and it was super fun. She was great to to play with, and uh, – Jonas and I had to teach her some Swedish because we speak Swedish in the beginning of it. And um, she was wonderful, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and But it was, again, two fun, great days. Um, and I was like, well, this song is catchy. Best of luck to you, Lady <laughs> Goo Goo. <laughs> I had no idea that what, what would, how big she would get. When you were growing up and your father, Stellan Skarsgård, was acting and had all these, like, bohemian friends and... Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, artists and actors and so on. Y- you you've said that you wished he was more ordinary. What kind of father did you wish you had when you were going through that stage of wishing that, like your father was like the other fathers? Well, I remember my friend, uh, a friend in my class, his dad uh, wore a gray suit and and drove a Saab 
and had a briefcase and worked in an office. And that was my dream dad. I was like, oh my God, what if I had a dad like that? That would have been the dream. What a, um, my buddy is so lucky because my dad would wear like some flowy dress if or nothing and just walk around with a glass of red wine and the hair standing up and like just, um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, just wanted, I just wanted to be normal and not different and not stand out. And so everything about my family was quite atypical. So everything about it that I've that subsequently came to embrace and, and love about my family, or I was at an age where to the point of like leaving uh, the film industry because um, I just wanted I didn't want attention. I just I don't want I just wanted to blend in and be like everyone else. And having a dad like like Stella definitely didn't help. You said he was wearing flowy dresses. Yeah, he would wear like uh, or some like Arabian garb, like some long something he found on a trip somewhere, or a sarong, which definitely wasn't a thing in Stockholm in the in, in the eighties. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it, it just definitely not a great suit like my friend's father. Have you worked with your? Well, I know you work with your father in Melancholia. Have you worked yeah. with him in other films? What what's that like for you? No, we haven't. We worked together. So Melancholia, we had he played. Dad plays my best man at my wedding, um, and we had one or two scenes together, and it was I loved every second of it. But that was it. So it wasn't really a meaty, rich, interesting relationship. It was um, again a couple of days. But I would love to to do something. Um, it's just about finding the the right project. But but yeah, no, that that'd be a dream. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Terry. This has been <laughs> such a pleasure. And uh, to end the whole two-month-long press tour with the, a conversation with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, is, it is an honor. Alexandra Skarsgård stars in the new film The Northman. After we take a short break, John Powers will review the new series The Staircase, a dramatization of a true crime documentary series. It stars Colin Firth. This is Fresh Air. In the new HBO Max series, The Staircase, Colin Firth stars as a man accused of murdering his wife. The series dramatizes a true crime story that was previously the subject of an acclaimed documentary series. The first three episodes of the new series drops Thursday. Our critic at large, John Power, says it tells a story that just keeps on being fascinating. Back when TV was in black and white, there was a cop show called Dragnet, whose hero, Sergeant Joe Friday, was famous for telling witnesses, Just the facts, ma'am. Using the facts he got, he then caught the perp. In real life, of course, things are not so neat. It's often hard to know what just the facts are, let alone what they mean. Consider the story of Michael Peterson, a Durham, North Carolina writer whose wife Kathleen was found dead at the bottom of their staircase in their house in 2001. He said she fell. The authorities said he killed her. The evidence was ambiguous. Three years later, French filmmaker Jean-Xavier de Lestrade turned the case into an acclaimed documentary series, The Staircase, that would set the template for countless true crime stories to follow. Imagine Dateline if it was exciting, not hokey. Peterson's saga has now been dramatized in a moody HBO Max series, also titled The Staircase. 
created by Antonio Campos and boasting a crack cast led by Colin Firth and Juliette Binoche. This new version starts with the stuff from the original series and then expands outwards. Hopscotching to and fro over a 16-year period, Campos seeks to reveal truths and capture emotions left out of the earlier series. Firth plays Michael Peterson, a man with an apparently idyllic family life. He has a loving marriage to Kathleen, that's Tony Collette, and happy relationships with their two sons and three daughters. On December 9th, 2001, he calls 911 and tells them that his wife is lying collapsed on the stairs. By the time help arrives, she's dead. Although he explains that Kathleen fell while drinking and hit her head, the DA's office is convinced that Michael murdered her with an implement, in part, it seems, because they disapprove of what they learn about his sex life. From here, things snowball. Not only does the investigation produce startling twist after twist, but the Peterson family starts splintering in all sorts of ways. And in a fresh narrative strand, Campos includes the story of the French filmmakers turning up in Durham, telling Peterson that they want to use his story as an example of American justice. Perhaps vaingloriously, he agrees. His lawyer, niftily played by Michael Stuhlberg, is more cautious. Here at their first meeting, he lays out Peterson's situation with steely clarity. Look, God willing, you won't need any help. But sometimes good people get dragged into situations that turn out bad. Okay. So, how much is it going to cost? <clears throat> In a case like this, you're going to need jury consultants, blood analysts, between four and five hundred K. Half a million bucks. No, I got five kids to worry about. No, three still in college. Good defense isn't cheap. I shouldn't need a defense. I shouldn't even be here. Does Kathleen have life insurance? Savings? Yes. So, when it comes to staying out of prison, anything's up for grabs. Now, the staircase is very skillfully turned. Campos directs with more visual panache than usual for TV, and he wins lots of nifty performances, including those of Parker Posey, who captures the scornfully amused righteousness of prosecutor Frida Black, and Colette, who endows the dead Kathleen with a vivid living presence. The whole show revolves around Firth, who hasn't been this good since the film A Single Man. Losing himself in Peterson, who sort of attainted Mr. Darcy, he does a spectacular job of conjuring up a man who's charismatic, erudite, slippery, and entitled. He's sure the justice system will be on his side. Big mistake. In fact, both versions of the staircase detail the workings of a justice system filled with pricey lawyers, ambitious district attorneys, bickering experts, and appeals to a jury's cultural biases that may have nothing to do with the evidence or even the case at hand. By making the French film team part of the action, we see them urging Peterson to show more emotion on camera. Campos accentuates the idea that it's narrative, not truth, that matters. What is justice? asks Lestrade's film editor played by Binoche. Two sides competing to tell a better story. When it comes to telling a better story, this dramatized staircase can't match the addictively fizzy energy of the original documentary, which you can watch on Netflix. Where the French film enthralls us with shocks and surprises, it's clearly riveted by the showbiz strangeness of high-profile American trials, Campos wants to explore something less fun, the painful human reality of the Peterson case. He leads us into the murk, both emotionally and intellectually. 
Which brings us back to facts. It's one measure of their ultimate unknowability in the Peterson case that, through the five preview episodes anyway, Campos doesn't tell us whether Michael Peterson actually murdered Kathleen. Rather than attempt to solve the mystery, he wants us to feel the weight of her death and what happens to everyone in its wake. He clearly agrees with the words of the French producer. Innocent or guilty, the Peterson ending will always be tragic. John Powers reviewed the new drama series, The Staircase, which begins on HBO Max tomorrow. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about how many Russian oligarchs hide, launder, and protect their money in Britain, and how that's helped Russia afford its war in Ukraine. My guest will be British journalist Oliver Bullough, who has spent years investigating how kleptocrats hide their ill-gotten gains. He's about to publish his second book on the subject. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henry Bodonato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. 